Welcome to Mysterious Universe Plus, Season 24, Episode 1. Coming up on this show, we've got telephone calls of the daydream, a Pleiadian space Fabio eats Burger King, and soul fragments of the Cena. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. It's so nice to come back for a new season. And what better way to bring it back than to talk about Space Fabio eating at where? Burger King? Yeah. I love a good Space Fabio story. Oh, we all do. That's why we're the do best. This. Yeah, they are. And I'm happy to be back in the studio and just to escape screaming children. <laughs> After our relaxing week started with mask mandates, then a day later it was a lockdown, mm-hmm. and then the rain started. <laughs> so it was just a, a week of screaming kids, pouring rain. Lockdown, I've got landscaping going on at the moment, so yep. there's workers, there's buzzsaws going all day. There's mud everywhere. Oh, so relaxed. How are they able to do any work, though? With the lo- are they allowed to work? They had, like, a tent set up, and they were just cutting tiles. But, yeah, most of the time they couldn't do any work. No, see, this, we couldn't go anywhere. That was the biggest problem. I thought, oh, you know, we'll, we'll head out and we'll go on an adventure and take yeah. the kids out. No, couldn't do any of it. The amount of times I pretend to, pretended to lose at Hungry Hungry Hippos... <laughs> That was my entire week. Do you have any idea how many fake cups of coffee have been made for me? A little baby cappuccino machine? (laughs) Having to go cheers every single sip? Dude, the amount of times I've tried to explain snakes and ladders. (laughs) He's too young. Well, that's the problem. Like my kid, my my eldest son, he loves board games. Like he loves getting them out. He loves like the little tokens that you use and the card. Like he loves Monopoly. But But he has no concept of it. His attention span is like four minutes. Yeah. So you got to get everything out. you got to lay everything out. And you explain to him like a, a three-year-old's version of the rules and he's really excited. Four minutes max and he's just, he's on to something else. And it's like, I just spent all this time unpacking Monopoly. Now i got to pack it all up and get everything ready, blah, blah, blah. Then he's on to finger painting. Yeah, they just it's jump the entire from week. It's the next. different activities all day. My kid's really easy and my eldest is really easy. He just sits there watching pool robot videos. He just wants to see robots in pools. I have no idea why. Just sits there. I'm like, are you sure? And then he wants to watch alarm systems. And so he's now pointing at sensors. I'm just like, what? I, I started showing my kid uh, drumming videos. Oh, don't start that. I know. It was a big mistake. Yeah. So now he wants to just drum everything. So he goes to the kitchen, he gets chopsticks out, and he sets up his drums, and his drums are cushions for now. For now. But he, he, he begs me to put on a drumming video on YouTube, and he just tries to match it. <laughs> And yeah, everyone that comes in just says, why are you teaching your child to drum? Yeah, yeah, we'll learn our lessons. Look, and this is the thing that normally when we have our break, we go and do, do something, but obviously the world is completely different because of COVID. Like everything has changed. But you know, in saying that though, some things remain the same, especially when it comes to paranormal phenomena. And did you see that terrible collapse of that Miami yeah, condo building? That was shocking. It was just, you know, horrible. And there's so many conspiracy theories out there at the moment, a lot of mad stuff about what's going on. What I think this really comes down to, it comes down to poor engineering and poor maintenance. It Did you see the Navy bomb conspiracy? No, what was I saw the they, John McAfee one. They tested a, um, a, a submersible weapon, like a, a bomb, just off the coast of Miami. Right. And there's some uh, conspiracy theories that the the repercussions of the explosion caused some kind of tremor that toppled the building. But they should be resistant to tremors. Like, surely should be able to handle. Yeah, should be. Yeah, exactly. Well, what's come out of this though is uh, a few days after the collapse of this building is, of course, the strange telephone calls, phone calls from 
the dead. And, you know, I was only just talking about this on one of our last episodes before we went on break. And it was just strange that this coincidence kind of came up. Now, of course, you're going to have strange activity taking place, you know, with terrible disasters. We know this. I was talking to you about harbingers of disaster, Ben, and how entities and strange phenomena seems to be associated with high emotional impacts. And of course, something like this has a massive amount of emotional impact. But on today's show, after we go into space, Fabio, I'm going to go into some of these calls or apparently 16 calls that came from an apartment of a pair or a couple that sadly look like they've been lost in this tragedy. I'm looking forward to hearing that because people were tweeting that story at me that there were these strange phantom calls coming out of the wreckage or the rubble. Mm. Uh, I didn't get a chance to read any of it because I was playing Candyland. (laughs) So I'm actually, I am genuinely looking forward to you describing the story, because I actually haven't looked into it at all. Look, it's not huge, but it ties in very nicely to uh, some of the more far-out examples of phone calls from the dead. But right. I wanted to expand on that, because it's not just phone calls from the dead. You know, we know that these you know, uh, seemingly strange or high-strangeness incidents take place that are associated with telephones and people that appear to have passed over. But it's not just that. The telephone appears to be some type of paranormal appliance that can be utilized by a whole range of entities in UFO sightings, bed in black encounters. And I even have this very strange case of a woman that answered a phone call from the dead in a daydream. In a daydream. In a daydream, but it's got some far-reaching consequences. So we'll go into that all in a moment. Okay. But what have you got coming up? Because I've been—I was going to get this book, and yeah. you managed to pick it up. Uh, Extraordinary Contact: Life Beyond Intruders by Deborah Jordan Corbel. Is this the one that's Corbel? got... Yeah, this is the Ford by Yvonne Smith, right? Yeah, Ford by Yvonne Smith. Yeah. And Deborah was the person that Bud Hopkins was writing about in his book, uh, Abducted. Oh. It came out in 1994. Yep. Um, no, sorry, not Abducted. Intruders. Mm-hmm. Intruders. And the main case in that book was Kathy Davis. Mm-hmm. And Kathy Davis is the author here. This is the one, Deborah. That, yeah, this is a story that I mentioned only recently. Remember how she was having strange balls of light appearing yes. in her backyard, yes. and having that kind of phenomenon was, taking place? As I was reading through her version of events, so that I, I realised you had just recently spoke about this. Uh, so she actually came forward with her real name and her own retelling of things in. 1994, and that was the book abducted. Her book was called Abducted. Right, yeah, because intruders, she'd asked uh, Hopkins to remain anonymous. That's right. Mm. Yeah, they had, she had the pseudonym Kathy Davis. But the new book is a rewrite, a complete rewrite of that one from 1994. Now, the reason, the reason she did this, she explains, is that back in 1994, because her sister had experiences as well, her sister had uh, abduction stories to tell, uh, her sister approached her and said, can I share some of my experiences. Can I add some chapters to your book? And, you know, being a good sister, she she sort of said, yeah, well, fine. But it really kind of messed up her book. Like she wanted to tell her whole story. Yeah. But because her sister was like, no, I'll write these chapters, it kind of, it, it, just, became, it just became a different book. Mm. So this was really her chance to go back and just retell her story from the start. Now, many of you will be familiar with it because I'm sure a lot of you have read Hopkins's classic Intruders. So I don't want to spend too much time on the whole abduction theme. It's the things that happen in between that interest me. Yeah. Some of the uh, government uh, attention she gets after she speaks to Bud. Like all of a sudden, Hopkins must have been monitored by agencies or some agencies because as soon as she spoke to Hopkins, she's getting weird vans parked out the front of her house. She's getting telephone repair guys every second day 
who are basically telling her to piss off if she asks any questions. You know, weird people taking photographs and it just gets very strange. They all seem to actually have some incidents with that. It was like, uh, I was actually reading today because I was looking into strange phenomena, obviously, that relates to, you know, telephones and people having, you know, I was looking more for the spiritual side of things. But one thing I came across actually was from research by Nick Redfern. And Nick Redfern pointed out that it seems like anyone that was involved with Whitley Strieber's book, particularly Communion, I mean, I know that Whitley Strieber's written a number of books, but uh, Communion, people started getting these strange, harassing phone calls. Uh, This was including the publishers, um, anyone that wrote like a review about it, they got phone calls. There was one guy that, I think it was 1987, well, it was when Communion was published, but in 1992, so it was five years later, Strieber himself started receiving these harassing phone calls, right? And eventually, uh, it was early days, but Strieber installed uh, like caller ID or the earlier version of caller ID, yeah. and they traced it back to this company called EG&G. And so he called up EG&G, and he was like, hey, I've been receiving harassing phone calls from your company. They're constant. They're incessant. They need to stop. And apparently there was like this like very soft-voiced girl. It was like, like receptionist, oh, I'm so sorry that you've been receiving this. When all of a sudden there was this interruption, we're very sorry you've been experiencing this. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah. It I'm, <laughs> I'm totally not an alien. Yeah, this is a human being it was telling so, you nothing's wrong. And it was. As soon as this, and it's the voice apparently sounded like a cranky old man. Yeah. And as soon as this happened, no more phone calls came through. So it was like that particular phone had been hijacked mm-hmm. either by extraterrestrials or some type of agency that was trying to see what uh, what Strieber was talking well, about. Th- there's definitely more of that in Deborah's experiences. And when you spoke about Bud Hopkins's cases and his research, did you talk about, well, her name in, in the experience would have been Kathy Davis and the, the strange light that was around her pool house? Yeah, yeah. You spoke about that, yeah. right? Because that's where she basically starts, uh, June the 30th, 1983, when was she, pump was, house, she was washing dishes and, yeah, she sees this weird light in, in the pump house. Did you describe that recently? Yes, yeah. Okay, so to go through it again from your memory, help me out here. So she goes out, she investigates the light, there's really nothing there. But she it goes, blinks out. She goes to the garage, there's nothing there either. Her dog goes missing somewhere in this experience. But it gets intriguing because she describes, I don't remember if you described this, because maybe Bud left this out. I'm not sure if Bud included these details. Oh, mine was a very brief overview anyway. But she said she started to feel hot. I get this really hot sensation and the feeling of something's terribly wrong, I need to get out of here. Mm. What she ended up doing was calling her friend to come and have a swim in their pool. Because she had this hot sensation. She felt hot and bothered. Oh, I do. Yeah, she did. She went to go to a friend's house, I think. I think she... Yeah, she went to a friend's house, which took way longer than it should have. That's right, yeah. But when they ultimately made it back to, to Deborah's house... Wasn't it sitting in the driveway? Well, she... No, she ended up... They ended up going into the pool, and, and it was her friend's and her friend's daughter, her 15-year-old daughter, and they're all swimming in the pool. It's, it's quite late at night. It's like a night swim. And they all start feeling sick. They all start feeling sick to their stomachs about after about 10 minutes of swimming. And she noticed that her eyes were burning and her vision was turning white. All the lights she looked like had uh, looked at had a halo effect around them. And her friend was feeling the same thing. And her friend was like, it feels like someone's watching us. We're just going to go. Yeah, they were freaked out. Now, the next morning when she woke up, her eyes were swollen shut. They had like tears streaming down them. Uh, her mother took one look at her because she was living with her, her parents at the time, even though she was an adult with children. Uh, the doctor 
Was it the she, her mum immediately took her to the hospital. The doctor immediately said, you need to see an eye specialist right now. And the eye specialist was asking her, have you been looking at an arc weld? Yeah, had you been welding? That's the only thing he could think of because her eyes were just burnt. Mm. Uh, so it was a very, just very strange sensation. It took her, I think it was several weeks for her eyes to fully heal. But ever since then, they've never been right. She said she's very light sensitive and weak. She's got problems with night vision. Sometimes her eyes will just start watering. And after this event, uh, you probably mentioned this, that there was a huge patch of scorched earth in their backyard. Yeah, that's right. And nothing would grow there after. Yeah, it was like an eight foot diameter circle, but it had this huge 48 foot long by two feet, you know, wide kind of like a line up to it? like a sw- she called it a swathe like a like it's almost like a burst of something coming off the side of it mm. burnt into the grass um and at the edge of it was this perfectly round circle just seed into the ground the grass inside this mark was folded down as if it had been crushed the soil smelt weird too like it had this weird bitter odor oh i didn't know that the grass outside of this was fine um but there were other parts where it looked like the grass had been singed, like something had burnt it. The trees directly north of this patch had all been damaged and burnt yeah, as well. Wasn't it the tops of the trees had been burnt? Yeah. 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 And the soil had turned as hard as rock. So you'd get a bucket of water and pour it on it. It was like concrete. Cricket pitch. Yeah. It would just completely come off. So she started to contact the local you know, university. She called the states because she's in Indianapolis. Was it Indianapolis? Indiana? I can't recall the location. I think it was Indianapolis. And she called the agricultural department there. No one could give her any answers. The university couldn't give her any answers. And it was interesting because that same year, she'd been going to the library with her kids for story time. And that's where she'd stumbled across Bud Hopkins's first book, Missing Time. Mm-hmm. And she thought it was a book about people being kidnapped by criminals. Like <laughs> She thought it was like a... Um, you know, just a, like a true crime book. Yeah. Well, missing time was a relatively new term back yeah, then. The and concept she, was new. She just saw abductions and she thought, oh, abductions, like, I'll, I'll read this later. She kept coming back to this book and eventually she started to flick through and see the pictures and it freaked her out because she realized the pictures were the same as the recurring nightmares she had been having the last couple of years. Mm. Now, every time she looked at that patch in her backyard for some reason it would remind her of that book. And she's thinking, well, why is my mind doing this? Why am I thinking about this weird book in the library and this patch of scorched earth in my backyard? It doesn't make sense. Now, in the back of the book, Missing Time, Bud Hopkins actually gave his address and he encouraged anyone that was reading it who thought they might be able to contribute to his research or if they had similar experiences to get in touch with him. So she through, you know, the strangeness that was going on, the lights in her backyard, this scorched circle, she thought maybe this researcher will be interested in what's going on with me and my family. So she started to write a letter to him. As soon as she started to write the letter, the very act of the intention of, I'm going to tell someone about this weird stuff. Yeah, it triggers everything. It starts to trigger these flashbacks. Yeah. And she said sometimes she would see only flashbacks of large black eyes, Other times she would see grey faces with slit mouths. Uh, She remembers seeing bright flashing lights, strange hands touching her, like just little flashes of information. Um, And these memories, she had memories of being hit by lightning in the chest and thinking she was dying. Weird stuff kept popping up. 
But eventually she got this letter finished and she mailed it off to Bud Hopkins. Now, as she did this, obviously he didn't get back to her straight away and she actually didn't expect him to get back to her at all. She started to get worse and worse as the days continued. She was nauseated every day. She had strange rashes breaking out over her body. This is days after the pool incident. And her hair started to come out mm. just in huge clumps. She just hated brushing her hair because so much would come out and it would just kind of break, kind of break off at the roots. Um, and at this point, she was terrified of something, but she, dis- she didn't know what she was afraid of. All she knew was that she couldn't let her guard down or they would be back for her and her kids. But she didn't know who they were or where that idea even came from. She got really uncomfortable whenever she was near a dark window. And again, every time she looked at that horrible circle patch in her backyard, she would get this anxiety. Now, eventually got to the point where she was having panic attacks. Like she was going to the local hospital thinking she was having a heart attack and it was just a panic attack. Um, and while waiting for a response from Hopkins, the childhood memory started to come out, you know, little things that she thought, how could I have forgotten that? That's such a strange thing. Why, why did I not think of that, uh, that earlier? What kind of memories? She remembered she had taken a trip with her older sister when she was six and how they had gotten lost. She said, while I was trying to find my way back to where I should have been, I ran into a strange house and met a little boy with big black eyes who tricked me into what I thought was a playroom. He performed experiments on me and hurt my leg by poking something into it. I remembered waking up one night and seeing someone big standing next to my brother's bed, staring very intently at him. I also remembered waking up in my bed one night when I was really young and seeing someone lying beside me trying to suck the breath out of me through my mouth. Whatever or whoever it was, they weren't much bigger than me, but they had a funny-shaped body and a large head. With all these little memories coming out, and again, you would think, how would you forget that? Because from what we know, it sounds like it's a depiction of the greys. We know that they seem to suppress memories, and it seems like that suppression mechanism either on purpose or through accident, fails at some point and then at later life for an abductee and then that's when everything comes rushing back. And then in the house, there's weird poltergeist stuff going on. It's like this whole torrent of strangeness gets triggered by her intent Mm. to contact Bud Hopkins. She's seeing lights, you know, coming down the hallway and disappearing into the wall and footsteps at night and all sorts of weirdness. You have to speculate, is that to prevent her from talking to Hopkins or any person from talking to a researcher? Or is it in some way encouraging them? Because obviously it's such high strangeness that any investigator worth their salt would go, we need to talk to you more. We need to get you under hypnosis. No idea. No idea. And she genuinely thought that she was going crazy and there's no way Hopkins would ever want to talk to her. But amazingly, he called her on the phone. And after... Several, you know, long hours on the phone and he he called her several times. He asked her a ton of questions. He must have been satisfied that she wasn't a crank. He actually organized for Deborah to go and visit him in New York City and he lined up a hypnotherapist she could see for free. Now, just to give you a sense of her situation at the time, she was desperate for the help, so she agreed to go. But she had no way to get there because she was flat broke. So in order to pay for the bus ticket to New York City, because I think the furthest she had been was Ohio or something, she'd never been out of the state, um, she 
decided she was going to sell her washer and dryer to raise money for the bus ticket. (laughs) She must be motivated because that's... That's the only thing she had that was worth any money that you could sell, her washer and dryer, and that's what she did. She sold them. She got the money for the bus ticket. Long story short, it was an incredible trip. Uh, She talks about the culture shock of just being in New York City. But by seeing the hypnotherapist, she said she consciously recalled this night on April of 1978 when she had seen two grey, big-eyed creatures in her bedroom standing next to her bed. She said, I had told my husband about them in the morning and he asked me what I'd eaten before bed that night. She said, I didn't remember a thing, even though, well, he didn't remember a thing, even though he'd been lying bed in bed right next to me during the whole experience. And she said she never had the presence of, of mind to try and wake him while these aliens were standing at the foot of her bed. She also recalled a feeling of a sharp pain in her head right behind her nose during this experience and remembered tasting blood in her mouth and feeling as if something was going up one of her nostrils. Uh, It sounds like an implant experience, right? But I'm not... There's great detail in here. If you want to go and read, you know, exactly what happened to her, if if you're new to Deborah's story, you might want to start with... Hopkins's book, of course, Intruders. It's it's been re-released, so you can go pick it up now. Uh, there's a paperback, hardcover, and Kindle version available in this reissue. Uh, but she goes in more detail in in her own book, Extraordinary Contact. But again, I'm more interested in what happened afterwards, because after this experience in New York, she has all these you know hypnotherapist uh, appointments, and the memories start emerging, and she's starting to deal with what actually has been happening in her life. It's eventually time to go home. So Bart Hopkins takes her to the bus stop and he just leaves her with the comment to kind of, uh, you know, calm her nerves. He says, once we start looking into your case, the visits will stop. Now, she knows this is just meant to make her feel better. Like, there's no way Hopkins can know that. Uh, Maybe that's what he's seen with his other clients. I'm sure he had, yeah. She said she actually felt worse leaving New York than when she arrived. She said, I now felt as if I was a very bad girl, that I had told something I shouldn't have to someone I shouldn't have, and that I was going to be in big trouble when I got home. I felt that they were going to come back for me and they were going to be mad. She said, I wasn't even supposed to remember this stuff, let alone tell anyone about it, especially someone who might stop it from happening again. So she describes this bus trip, right? And it must have been a really long... It's like a 17-hour bus ride to, hell. to get back home. <laughs> it's a shocking bus ride. And she's as the bus pulls in, she's like crying like a baby. You know, it's a rainy, dreary New York evening and the bus is filthy and dirty. And she felt safer in the big city because all these pap- people are around. She thinks they can't get to me here. You know, there's too many people. But now she's going back to the boonies. She's going to be exposed. Now, she describes going on this bus trip and the first stop was somewhere in Pennsylvania. And as the bus stops, she says suddenly she feels really strange. She gets this prickly sense of anticipation in her gut, like it washes over her, that someone is about to get on board the bus and it's someone she needs to meet. She can't explain why she thinks this. It just She just gets this feeling. And she looks over the back of the seat in front of her And what she sees nearly takes her breath away because they're getting on the bus. She says, is the most beautiful man I have ever seen. And he's looking directly at her and smiling as he's stepping towards the 
the back seats of the bus. It was as if he knew I was there, she said, before he even got on the bus. Now she describes him. He's about six foot four, medium build, slim but muscular. He has shoulder length, wavy, blonde hair and steel blue eyes. And the most perfectly structured, beautiful face, she says, I have ever seen. She said the way he smiled at me knocked me out. And I thought to myself, well, if I have to share my seat with anyone on this bus, baby, I sure hope it's you. And as soon as she had this thought, he just looked at her and went, hmm, yes. <laughs> like he just gave her this smile as if he'd read her mind. He had read her mind. Now, she realizes that she's staring at him and she's probably got her mouth wide open and a little bit of drool's coming out. And she immediately looks away and thinks, oh, I'm such an idiot. Like, oh, she feels so stupid. Because, you know, she's like a depressed abductee who hasn't had any sleep in like six months. She's been eating a stress. She probably looks like the, she's in the worst shape she's ever been in her life. Her eyes are still bulging from the pool incident. Bit scattered. Half her hair's missing. She looks like a homeless person who's on a bus somewhere, right? And this 10 out of 10 Pleiadian god <laughs> is just smiling at her. So she actually scoots over in her seat, hoping that he'll sit down. But instead, uh, another passenger on the bus, who was a soldier returning from a tour of duty, sits down and starts talking to her. And she's disgusted by this guy because he's like, eat- <laughs> so you're pushing him out of the way. He's eat- yeah, he's eating a sandwich and he's talking, telling her about what he's seen overseas. And when he's eating his sandwich, it's like spilling on her and he's just being gross and he smells and he's all dirty. And uh, she notices that the, the beautiful blonde man has gone past her and sits next to this guy's soldier buddy in a different seat. And she's thinking, oh, damn it. Why not going to sit with this guy for 17 hours? But she listens and she can hear the blonde Pleiadian guy, we're assuming, <laughs> the blonde space Fabio, <laughs> chatting to this other soldier that he's sitting next to. And he says, look, uh, I see that you are very tired after your long trip and there is an empty seat over there. If you like, I will trade seats with your buddy and you can take that empty seat. That way you and your body can get, buddy can get some sleep and I don't mind sitting with that young lady over there. So the soldiers actually go for this. They're like, yeah, let's swap seats. They're happy to do this. And he goes and sits next to Deborah. Yeah. Now she's like, oh, oh. Like, you know, pushing her boobs together and <laughs> getting whatever well, strands of hair are left. And as soon as he sits down, he turns to her and says, I felt sorry for those guys. I knew they were tired. But I really wanted to sit with you. That's why I got them to trade seats. And there's that smile again. Like he starts smiling at her and she just, she feels, you know, love, like she loves welling up inside her. She's, what, who is this strange hot man? With that, he, she said, he asked me what I'd been doing on my trip and where I'd been. So she explains, she doesn't tell him anything, right? She just says, oh, you know, I was just uh, visiting friends in New York and doing some snooping around and he just throws his head back and does this real sing-song kind of laugh, like this, <laughs> the extraterrestrials will love that story. And she's like, what? How awkward. I, I didn't say, she didn't say anything about UFOs. She didn't say anything about extraterrestrials. She says, what? I never said anything about that. Why did you say that? Why did you say extraterrestrials? And he just looks at her again with that smile and says, never mind. Now, she realizes that this is going to be 
a pretty strange 16 hours left of bus trip, right? This is going to be a weird trip. Um, the guy, she eventually learns his name is Lars, and this is a pseudonym she's given him. And he starts to ask her all sorts of questions. He wants to know everything about her. He wants to know if she's married, if she has children, and uh, she basically slips under a kind of spell, she says. Like, she just unloads everything on the guy. She finds out his story. He claims to be 33 years old. He says that he likes to ride motorcycles on ice, and he has on a... ice? Yeah, he's like an ice motorcyclist. Is that even a thing? <laughs> I have no idea. Probably, probably a thing. Uh, and he worked for a friend who owned a motorcycle courier business in Cincinnati. He said he loved children and that he thought it was really neat to have a little piece of you live on after you're gone. Uh, and he starts telling this story about how he was on the East Coast to help a kid with brain damage. Like, he's just some kind of Doogie Howser doctor as well. <laughs> um, and he spoke so technically that she thought he must have been a doctor. Like, he must have been someone of high learning or a professor of something because he was just so articulate and so well-spoken. But he had this weird smooth, soft voice and way of speaking and this strange kind of sing-songy accent. It was very slight. Um, and she asked him where he was from and he just said, oh, you know, somewhere near Sweden. <laughs> they always go for Scandinavia. He, he didn't say he was from no, Sweden. He just said near somewhere near Sweden. Sweden mm. And he was very vague about it. Somewhere in the solar system. She said it didn't sound like a Swedish accent, but then what would she know? She knew that he was foreign because he got out a strange newspaper of a language she didn't recognise and he was actually reading it. But he then put his arm around her and put the newspaper on both of their laps and in this weird, weird way started to go through the words and kind of point out each word and, and start to teach her what the word means in English. And she said there was nothing creepy about it it, it all felt very sweet and natural. It didn't feel like he was coming on to her. She said it felt like this protector relationship. Like she, it's almost like her father was showing her how to read. It had that feeling to it. From um, an external viewpoint, it's very creepy. Like she felt like she was a little girl and uh, she was his charge. Like he mm. was a guardian of sorts. Mm. So this is the kind of sense that you get from this trip. Like this guy... It doesn't seem random at all. And she said throughout the entire trip, he was extremely protective of her. Like, it wouldn't be more than five minutes that would pass before he would ask her if she was okay or if she needed something. And in retrospect, when she's thinking about it, this was the most vulnerable point of her entire life. Think about what she's going through emotionally and mentally. Of course. She's just had to face the fact that what she thought was horrible nightmares, what she thought was strange fantasies from childhood, could actually be some unknown, Real. possibly alien force that is against her will taking her in uh, at night and doing experiments to her. And that she's got no way to stop it and doesn't has no no idea on what to do about it. And now she has to go home where it'll possibly happen again. And she's just at breaking point. And out of nowhere, this guy turns up and is looking after her on this lonely bus trip. Is it like some weird, like, debrief therapist that the ETs deploy when people have well, discovered what's happened to them? What I keep thinking of is this feeling that she's had that just by telling someone, especially Bud Hopkins, of what she's gone through, 
there's going to be repercussions. Sure. She's done something that's going to anger them. She's done something that's going to make them, you know, very upset with her. And, you know, she just has this feeling that it's wrong what she's done. This is the kind of control they have over her. So will they actually try and intercept her and punish her? Has he been sent to stop this from happening? Like some weird extraterrestrial Terminator or something? Is he the T the T one thousand or the T one hundred or whatever it is? Is he Arnie from the first Terminator movie? Yeah. Is he there no, to the protect second, the second Terminator film? Well, every Terminator film has the same story. But yeah, true. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Is is he going to protect her? Is he some kind of weird T eight hundred Pleiadian machine man bot sent from the future? To protect her at this precise moment. Do you know, I just didn't see this story coming out of this. Like, I didn't see this at all. I mean, I know that story, not very well, but I, I know the story. And it's so old, I never would have anticipated this. Well, apparently, Bard knew all this stuff. And all the but other Then crazies, why didn't he write about it? Because he didn't want to confuse the audience. It's like you can't... Because um, at the time, the, the idea of abductions was so insane. Yeah. You can't mm. add all this crazy stuff on top. Yeah. But all this was happening to her as well. So... She will never forget this guy because he was so kind and was looking after her. But after a while, remember, this is a really long bus trip. She noticed that he showed no signs of beard growth, even as they were getting towards the 17-hour mark of the trip. I bet you he's a smoothie too. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if she checked. But uh, it was just a bit strange because, you know, every, everyone else in the bus, like after 17 hours, most men are going to get at least a what do you call a five o'clock shadow, yeah. whatever it is. Um, and she noticed that every time he touched her, whether it was lightly on the arm or sometimes he touched her face for some reason, he felt exceptionally warm and she could feel this warmth flow through her entire body. And it was like relaxing her and recharging her at the same time. And at the during the whole bus ride, she didn't think any of this was unusual. She didn't even think about it. She was just so emotionally stressed. She was just going with it. So sometime in the middle of the night, the bus made an unscheduled stop, though. And it appeared that Lars, this blonde man-god, and, and, and Deborah were the only people awake on the bus. And wherever they stopped, it was pitch black in the middle of nowhere. There was no lights to be seen. And the bus driver just stops the bus and gets off and walks into the night. Now, Deborah immediately thinks this is strange. In the middle of nowhere? It's in the middle of nowhere. He just walks into the darkness. And she turns to Lars and she says, "What? where did he go? Why why would he just walk off and leave the bus? And and she starts thinking maybe he needed to use the bathroom. Well, there's a bathroom on the bus. And why would he just walk into the darkness to do his business? Why wouldn't he just use the bus bus bathroom? Uh, And she, she mentions this to Lars and he just says, don't worry about it. He'll be back in five minutes. It's like, okay. So after the bus driver returns, he does, after about five minutes, uh, they start continuing continuing on again. And they stop at she, what she says is the oddest looking truck stop slash restaurant she's ever seen. It's this weird circular metal shaped weird truck stop. And she's the only one awake on the bus for some reason, uh, apart from the bus driver who stopped. Lars, the the man god, is asleep on her shoulder and she has to actually climb over him to get off the bus. Um, and even when she does that, he's dead to the world. He doesn't wake up at all. He doesn't even shuffle. 
Now, she gets off. She's starving, so she wants to go and see what this truck stop has. So she gets off. Uh, she walks inside. The bus driver follows her in. She's so hungry, she goes in there and she notices that the only people in the whole uh, kind of truck stop are her, the bus driver, who was getting himself a cup of coffee, an old man and two girls. And the old man and the two girls seemed to be working there, but no one was doing anything except staring at her. Now, admittedly, it's 3am in the middle of nowhere and you probably don't get many customers, so... It's someone new to look at. Yeah, but normally people don't stare. But it's very weird to just stand there and stare. And she noticed that all of them had the same large, dark eyes that the bus driver seemed to have. And their staring is obviously giving Deborah the creeps. Now, she's tired, she's worn out, she's starving, she shakes it off. Um, She goes and purchases a sandwich and some orange juice. And when she sits down to eat, they're still staring at her. And the bus driver sipping his coffee with these big black eyes is still staring at her. And the the man and these two girls at work there staring at her. She's thinking, this is weird. Just leave me alone. So she starts eating. And the orange juice, I can't remember what sandwich it was, like a ham sandwich or something. The orange juice tastes like a ham sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? And then she eats the sandwich and it tastes like orange juice. They've gotten the flavours back to front. They messed up the flavours. They got everything else right. They got this weird truck stop restaurant, but they messed... It's the details, Aaron. When you're trying to screen a truck stop memory, you got to get the flavours right. She, she, she's like, this is weird, but she's so hungry. She eats her orange juice ham sandwich and drinks her ham sandwich orange juice. And then everyone's still staring at her. And they've got this weird kind of half grin on their faces. She realizes she needs to go to the bathroom, so off she goes, and she finds a way to the back of this weird building that she's in, and it's weird because there's this door, but it doesn't really go anywhere. It just goes into what she calls a one-holer, and I wasn't sure what this was because we don't use that terminology, but from the best I can gather, it's a term for a um, an outhouse, oh, okay. or sometimes like we would call them a portaloo or a port a porta potty. Yeah, right. So it's like a porta potty that's attached to the side of the building. And it's almost, and she's, as soon as she sees it, she's like, this is weird. I it's thought this was a restaurant. Like, why wouldn't they have a bathroom? Mm. Why like, would why, they have plumbing? Why, why wouldn't this place have plumbing and a bathroom? It just doesn't make sense. It's just a porta potty here. But she, anyway, she goes in and um, she looks in the mirror and it's not her reflection. It's a blonde girl she doesn't recognize wearing a blue turtleneck. <laughs> so they got the reflection wrong? And suddenly it just goes, and it phases back and it's her all of a sudden. And she's like, what was in that ham sandwich orange juice? <laughs> yeah, what's just taken? But yeah, have they gotten the mirror wrong? <laughs> Three things they've screwed up. So she rubs her eyes. She's like, this is weird. She, she does her business and she gets out of there. Like she starts to heading back towards the bus. Now... As she's heading back, one of the other passengers must have woken up and is making his way down the bus and walking, about to walk into this weird truck stop. And he's like wiping the sleep out of his eyes. He looks comatose, like he's just barely awake. And he looks at her as she gets on the bus and he's like, what? And he looks back at the truck stop and he's like, oh? And she says, this guy just turned 180 and immediately got back on the bus. Something about the truck stop to him was like, nope, 
I don't know. I don't yeah, want he what wasn't they got in there. To wake up. It's like, and I think a lot of us have probably read between the lines here and realized this is not a truck stop. This is a some kind of UFO converted <laughs> into a truck stop <laughs> just on. for this evening. Where did they get the portaloo from? Do, is that did they just hire one they, on like, the way there? Like, do they steal it? Alpha Twenty One. We need somewhere for. What if she goes to the toilet and he's like, bark, bark, bark. and then he's like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna get a portaloo, and then they fly their flying saucer over. They pick up a portaloo. And then they attach it to the side of their saucer. Then they land and they run the saucer in truck stop mode. And Alpha Alpha 27 screwed up the flavors of the orange juice and the ham sandwich. Talk about high strangeness. I mean, this is is surreal. And one of the the comments I always see whenever we cover articles about crashed UFOs, and one of the arguments is always put forward of like, oh, they could travel through space and yet they crash. It's like, no, they're idiots. Like, this, they're clowns. I don't understand, like, why go to all this effort? Why fake a truck stop? It's just all, are they trying to see human beings in, a, in what they think is their natural environment? Well, they don't really have to get it that right, you know, because... No, they don't. They but just have to make her th- think that she's going a bit crazy. It doesn't matter if they you get the details they would try a bit harder. No, I think they've, they've pretty much got this down, I think. Um so they, they get back on the bus um, and off they go. The weird alien bus driver just keeps driving. Um, and Lars had woken up and he had this strange, like, concerned look on his face and just asked her if she had enjoyed her snack. And that's all he kind of said about it. No. Well, she's like, no, the orange juice tasted like a ham sandwich. Um but out of the blue, as they keep driving, Lars says, I wish I could dance with you. And it's this really, it's like three o'clock in the morning. Everyone's asleep. And he's like, I wish I could dance with you. What it's this drunk? really weird thing that comes out of his mouth. But for her, it had so much meaning. Because whenever she was stressed at home, whenever she needed to let go and let out some stress, she would turn the stereo up and she'd do like this flash dance kind of crazy dance moves where no one could see her and just dance her anxiety away. It was her thing. Like it looked hideous, but she didn't care as long as no one was home. She'd feel much better. She'd just do this crazy dance, like a punch dance. Um, And whenever she would do it, it's almost like she would go into an altered state of consciousness and she started to feel when she was doing these punch dances that someone was joining with her and someone was watching her. And when he said, I wish I could dance with you, it sounds silly, she says, but she blurted out or she thought to herself, you must be the one who dances with me. You must be the one who watches me. Oh, so suggesting that he's been around longer than she realizes. And as soon as she had this thought, he just gave her this little mm, mm, this little nodding yeah. grin. Now, at, at one point during the bus trip, he reaches over, he takes her face in his hands, pulls her hair back, and starts telling her that where he's from, the women wear their hair like this, and he starts adjusting the, her hair. And then he says, "Can I kiss you?" And she's like, "Um, okay." And she's like, this is not like me at all. Like, I don't barely talk to strangers. I don't even look at strangers, let alone kiss them on bus rides. And she said it was the softest, gentlest kiss she had ever had. But when they had finished, he looked as if he had just experienced something mind-blowing. Like he had this look on his face like, what was that? Like he'd never been kissed before. He didn't know what it was like. He just looks like a teenager who had their first kiss ever. Uh, and she's like, believe me, I'm not that good at it. Like, I'm not better than anyone else. 
But from the way he reacted, you would think she was like Venus, the goddess of love, who had kissed the life into him or something. He was just—he just had this weird look on his face. Uh, eventually, they reached Columbus, Ohio, uh, around dawn, um, and this is where Lars was to get off the bus and catch another one to Cincinnati. Uh, he had an hour to wait for his next bus, and she had an hour layover before the bus would leave again to her home to Indianapolis. So they've got some time to spend together, an hour to kill, and they decide to get some breakfast. So they go to Burger King. And when she starts to order, Lars turns to her and says, what is the difference between bacon and sausage? She looks at him like, what? You don't know the difference between bacon and sausage? And what? I don't understand. What is the difference? (laughs) Imagine having to explain that. And... She explains it to him. She's like, well, you know, bacon is from pig and it's delicious and sausage is from usually from beef and it's delicious. Uh, and just get maybe get both. And then he's like, what else should I eat? And she says, well, you know, it's the breakfast menu. Like most of it's good. It's, I don't know, it's Burger King. So she orders and then Lars is like, when the ladies ask Lars what he wants, he's like, I will have double sausage sourdough breakfast king, one double bacon sourdough breakfast king, one double ham sourdough breakfast king, one sausage egg and cheese croissant, which one bacon and egg cheese croissant, which one ham and egg cheese croissant. And he just goes through. Is he ordering everything? He goes through the entire menu and orders one of almost everything until she's like, uh, you should only, that's a lot of food. Maybe you should stop. <laughs> so they bring out the food, right? And she sits down and the first thing he's angry at is how small the orange juice containers are because he he wanted more of the orange juice for some reason. Like, he's just... Everything about him is is weird. He's space bore at. And, yeah, he basically sits down and he just eats all of this Burger King. Like, 20-something breakfast sandwiches. Wasn't that out of the cone head? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's where they got it from. They probably read. <laughs> well, Dan Aykroyd is a huge, you know, yeah. has a huge interest in the paranormal. So maybe he's got some. Maybe he spoke to her, or he, you know, he spoke to Hopkins yeah. or something. But uh, he just, this guy just ate all of this Burger King, and she's looking at him, and he's just smiling. He just has this beautiful man god smile about, it, and he's loving it like he's never tasted sausage before, and he's just like, oh my god, this is so good. Like, he looks like a little kid enjoying a lollipop. And she's looking at him, stuffing his face with these filthy breakfast sandwiches from Burger King. And all she can think is, I don't want to leave this guy. I don't know if I can live without this man. But if he leaves now, I'll never see him again. And he doesn't even know my address or phone number. And as soon as this thought crosses her mind, he's like, oh, well, don't worry. You could just go, you could just write down, I'll find you. So again, he's reading a mind. Don't, don't worry. I'll just... <laughs> I'll just find you. No, don't worry. I'll just give me your address and phone number and I'll find you. And he just want to stay there and eat. <laughs> he's, he's smashing his Burger King and she just he just says there's a place where near his where he lives, his home, doesn't say where it is, where he wants to take her where they can eat and dance. And he, she believed him and she says, I still do. She says, well, what if I move or something? Because she writes down her address and phone number and he says, don't worry, I'll find you. Now, they still had plenty of time before the buses were to leave 
And she's like, she's had breakfast. She's like, I need to use the bathroom, Lars. Um, I'm off to go to the restroom. And he's like, okay. And he walks into the women's restroom with her. <laughs> she has to stop him and go, okay, Lars, see this picture on the door? That's a lady. And see this triangle? That's a skirt. That's what ladies wear. This is the ladies' room. See the other door over there with the man on it, with the pants? That's the men's room. That's where you go and I go in here. And he's like, okay. <laughs> she goes in and does her business. When she comes out, she pushes the, uh, the bathroom door to get out and it whacks him in the head. What, was he just standing at the, at the door? <laughs> the whole time, he's been standing like inches from the women's bathroom entrance door. <laughs> like just waiting for her, like some weird automaton. <laughs> just completely full of Burger King. These are space morons. <laughs> but very attractive space morons. Well, that's normally kind of the equation, isn't it? And when she comes out, she's like, okay, Lars, let's, uh, let's go somewhere else. And as they start to walk, he starts to complain. He's like... I have a funny feeling right here. And he starts pointing to his stomach. Ah, uh, well, you just ate half the shop, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> That's what she says. She's like, Lars, you, you, I just watched you eat 20 Burger King breakfast sandwiches of all different types and about 100 of those little orange juice things. That's probably why. And he's like, he doesn't understand. And she says, well, are you feeling nauseous? Are you feeling nauseated? Is And he's like, what does nauseated mean? Oh, that, wouldn't it just be frustrating? Wouldn't you be frustrated having to tell someone what everything is? All she thinks is that he's the greatest man that's ever walked the face of the earth. And she, has, she says, you know, like, you're going to puke. Like, you're going to throw up. And he just looks like, at her with this up? blank face. Like, yeah. he has no idea what it means. You know, that means all the stuff you've put into your stomach through your mouth starts to come back up the tube and back out of your mouth. And he's just thinking, what a moron. Don't people barf in Sweden? And he hears her thoughts and he's like, yes, that must be what I'm feeling. <laughs> My favourite part of this whole story is she says to him, look, I've got some Pepto-Bismol tablets and uh, you're welcome to a few if you need them. They'll, you know, they'll help with your stomach. And he's like, yes, I am very interested. And he hands over, she hands over the Pepto-Bismol packet and he grabs it and he just starts reading out loud, really loud. Calcium carbonate. <laughs> the ingredients, yeah. He's like bismuth subsilicate, 525 milligrams, benzoic acid, DNC red number 22, flavor, gallon gum, magnesium, aluminium silicate. And he's just, she's like, Lars, what are you doing? She opens the packet for him and gives him two tablets. And she says, this will really help with your stomach. He's like, thank you. He takes them. He puts the two tablets in his coat pocket and he looks at her with this look on his face like he's and he's like you said the tablets would help and i still have the the stomach ache she's like lars you need to take them <laughs> you can't just put the tablets in your pocket you have to put them in your mouth and swallow them <laughs> and he's like oh i i knew that I knew that. Like, he's trying to cover. And she actually detected some embarrassment in him. And it would be hard. Like, think about it. If you went to a, an alien planet and you were going to get some Smarf 27 to fix your flom-flom, you wouldn't know where to stick it in your flume. That is true. But it, it's, it, it seems that that's not his original body at all, though, right? Exactly. What if you're on an alien planet, you're in some other creature's body, you've got, like, 
17... Yeah, he's normally a purple tube. Slin sleeves that you breathe out of and you've got a couple of flom flams that you poop out yeah, of. Yeah, look, I'm willing to... What are you going to do if someone gives you a, a packet of floms? Where are you going to put them in your flam? Yeah, look, they definitely should get the benefit of the doubt, but, I mean, at least have some better understanding. You're messing with human <laughs> beings and then yet you're showing up not knowing how to take medication. You're in the do some research camp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, but prepare is, for is, your mission on Earth. But I'm wondering, is this a third party of some kind? Well, uh, uh, this guy is obviously the top of his class. Like, you don't get to do a mission of this sort unless you're the elite 1% of the Pleiadians. No, I think it's the opposite. I think that Earth is like one of the lowest levels that they come to <laughs> and so they send their dummies. Maybe he's one of those veteran soldiers that's like he's finished his tour of duty and he's, he's on this vacation incarnation. Potentially. But I, I just, I'm beginning to feel like, because I know how you, like, it just, it feels like maybe they've always been around, right? And the reason why she was involved in abductions is because a competing species has started to look at her. Not that he was protecting yeah, her, right. but more that they have always been watching her. And so this competing species has come along and gone, well, we can deal with these idiots. Well, I mean, it definitely you definitely get the sense that his emotional support is what he was there for, mm. right? Yes, he's a, he's a space bimbo. Yeah, they always are. He's a massive bimbo. Yeah. But he was exactly what she needed at that precise moment to get through the most kind of terrifying ordeal of her life. And um, as they reach the end of the station, he uh, asks if she can buy a newspaper for him. And he's just like, again, he's like a kid with a comic book. Like he's fascinated by the newspaper and all the pictures and everything. And the last thing he tells her is that um, when you get on your bus, look at the paper you bought for me put your headphones on and listen to the music. You'll be okay and remember, I'll never forget you and I'll see you again someday. This I promise you from my heart. And she feels like she's going to die without him. She's got this incredible emotional attachment to this guy just after this long bus ride. And she said if he had asked her to follow him to Cincinnati, she would have gone. Remember, she's got a boyfriend and two kids waiting for her back in Indianapolis. Um, and when she gets on the bus, you know, she's crying, she misses him, she hugs him and says goodbye but the first page she opens to on the newspaper is a story about children who have gone missing. And this just makes her think of her children at home and immediately she starts rushing back to reality. It's like the spell's broken. Somehow. Yeah, the, the spell's broken. Like, I've got to get back to my boyfriend. I've got to get back to my children. Why was I acting like that? Eventually, when she gets home, she, um, she tells her boyfriend about this weird guy. And he's the one that makes her realize the whole thing was strange. He's like, don't you think when he ordered 20 breakfast burgers at Burger I managed King, to eat them. It was a bit weird. And he didn't know that you have to swallow tablets for them to work. You can't just put them in your pocket. How did she respond? She's like, yeah, you're right. Now that I think about it. Do you, do you see the absurdity here? Like, as I'm listening to this story... I'm thinking, okay, so this woman has just discovered that it's, you know, a potentiality that she has been abducted and experimented upon. You know, a terrible, horrible thing. So she's got a 17-hour bus trip to get home. I mean, isn't it just simply she could sit there and read a good book? Why is it that they have to add, like, put this guardian on the bus and expose her to this high level of strangeness? 
When in reality, that actually would have been less traumatic if she had just sat on the bus by herself. No, it would have been way more traumatic. Cause you she's, yeah, because she needed the company. She needed someone to talk to. She needed someone that would protect her and ask her if she's okay and listen to her. It was all this emotional support. Mm. And again, it's like when they messed up the flavours, <laughs> whoever was trying to abduct her in the truck stop messed up the flavours. They got some of the details wrong. Like they didn't teach him that you swallow tablets. <laughs> it's almost like he'd never been to Earth before. He'd never been in a human body. No. And now he was like, awesome, I get to kiss a girl. Because remember he kissed her and he thought it was amazing. Eat food. I get to eat food. He said, I want to dance with you. Like he's never done it before. It's like he's enjoying the perks of this particular mission he's gotten. So he, she ends up um, researching this guy years later. Like she marries her boyfriend and life goes on. It's like 20 or 30 years later. It's 2012. Google now exists. You can look things up. And she starts to look up his details. And I think she uses Google Earth or something. Like she finds where she thinks his town is. And she eventually finds a... In Scandinavia. It's just outside, somewhere outside of Sweden. It's like an island off Sweden or something. And she um she finds a link to a cemetery. Something makes her click on this cemetery link. And she finds a detailed map of a graveyard and eventually finds his name on right. the gravestone. So they've stolen the identity from someone. And the birth date was correct. All the details that he said were correct. And she looked up articles of this guy from the area that match the name and the only things she could find were articles about him winning motorcycle races on ice oh but every time you looked at a picture of him he was always wearing a helmet and in full leathers so you couldn't really see his face no but what's happened by the sounds of it is that they've tried to find someone distant and apparently have searched death records found someone that has a i guess a profile that matches and utilize that well, when he met her on the bus, he was still alive, according to the date that was on the tombstone. But what was interesting about the date on the tombstone is that the death was only a year after he saw her on the bus. Uh, what makes this even more interesting is that apparently um, Bud Hopkins was able to track down relatives of this guy. And? And he asked them about this, Lars, whatever his real name was, and the the... The friends or relatives said, yeah, he's really eccentric and he goes missing for years at a time and we don't know where he is. We don't hear from him. He doesn't tell us where he's gone. He doesn't tell us where he's been. He just vanishes for years. And then suddenly then he, he dies just suddenly he turns up like nothing's happened. It's weird. He just kind of goes. So this it's, makes any sense. No, it's a really weird story. And later she explains that... Uh, you know, years after she had seen Bud Hopkins in New York, she had issues with her back. She had all sorts of health problems. Like one back issue she had, she could barely walk. She had to go to hospital. She was going to get one of those spinal injections where they see where the fluid goes, like one of those horrible oh, yeah, one evaluations. Oh, yeah, the taps to get the spinal fluid. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the day before this procedure, she's asleep in the hospital room and she, she calls these dreams. Lumbar punch. Lumber punch, something like that. Mm. She calls these dreams, but she says they're not dreams. They're they're we they're almost like visions. But she can't say she was awake because she wasn't. She was in some altered state. But they're not like normal dreams. She's this is the night before this operation, and she looks over at the hospital window, and it's Lars, and he's wearing his motorcycle leathers, and he floats through the window, and he floats up to her, and he's like, 
where are you? Where is this place? What, where are they keeping you? And she's like, Lars, this is a hospital. It's like, what's a hospital? <laughs> Tom Bimbo, like stupid Pleiadian space bimbo, doesn't even know what a hospital is. And she explains, I'm about to get this operation. I missed you so much. What are you doing here? Like, she doesn't even think that he's floated through the window. It doesn't even occur to her to ask, yeah, how like, is that how, possible? What the hell are you? And he basically just rubs her back and consoles her. And she's crying. And she's like, I missed you and my life's a mess. And he's like, it's okay. You know, is there any food we can get around here? <laughs> is there a vending machine downstairs? <laughs> Uh, and she eventually like fades off to sleep. And in the morning, she gets up and she's like, oh my gosh, what a weird dream. And she walks over to go Is to the like bathroom. there like wrappers all over the bed? <laughs> yeah, it's like Mars bar wrappers everywhere. She goes over to the bathroom and she goes to the bathroom. And when she's peeing, she's like, I just walked to the bathroom. She hasn't been able to walk for like a week. And then she realizes, I have no pain. She calls the nurse and the nurse is like, how are you out of bed? What's going on? How are you even walking right now? They call the doctor and the doctor's like, we don't need to do this operation. You're fine. She goes home. She gets sent home. Her back is totally cured from this weird vision of Lars. Uh, It happens a, a second time. He just appears in her house. Similar situation. She's in this weird altered state and he's just like walking towards her bedroom in the hallway. He's like, hello, this is a nice house you have. Oh, is there any food in the fridge? And she's like, Lars, what are you, this is amazing. Oh, what are you doing here? And she doesn't give all the details of this interaction. But basically, when it's over, again, he, f- he floats through the window and disappears. And then she kind of dozes off and wakes up and like, was that a dream? Or did that actually happen? What's going on? Like, it just it wasn't a normal dream. Now, the final time it happened, again, it's in her bedroom Lars turns up and goes to her bed and starts, like, he's really excited. He's like, oh, oh, wake up. I want to take you somewhere, show you something cool. You won't believe it. Take my hand. And she's like, oh, okay, Lars, where have you been? She grabs Lars's hand. And as she said, as soon as she grabs his hand, everything goes black. She can't see a thing. Uh, Not even her hand in front of her face. It's like her world is gone. And... She can still hear Lars, but his voice is now distant and she feels weird. She says the best way to describe it is she feels flat, like she's two-dimensional all of a sudden. And So not depressed, she actually physically feels flat. Yeah, she feels flat and just feels odd as hell. And then she realizes she can't take a breath. She can't actually breathe, but she can still communicate. She can still talk. So she's like, Lars, I can't breathe. I feel flat. Something is wrong. Now, again, she hears his voice, which sounds like it's in another room, and she hears him going, oh, shit, uh, you can't go with me. You need to be ready. Oh, no, shit, shit, shit. You have to go back. Let go of my hand. Let go of my hand now. She lets go of his hand, and she's like, oh, and she wakes up in bed. And she's like, what the hell happened there? What is going on? And, you know, what she learned is that when she was having all these experiences, and remember, this is years before she found his gravesite, and this is years after that bus trip. Uh, he was dead during this whole time that she was having these experiences with him. So again, the question—I don't know what to make. The of question this. is: Was Lars ever what, that Swedish guy? Yeah, was his identity stolen? Yeah, or was he a real person, and now it's a ghost that's intervening in extraterrestrial contact? Or I don't know. I just. 
I just don't know what to think of it's it. It's a weird story. I did not, because obviously her story is pretty well known. We know Hopkins's research back to front, but... But her story was already weird. Her I know. Her story was already strange. I know. So you can see why Hopkins would be like, he ate yeah. He ate how many breakfast sandwiches at Burger King? Yeah, maybe I'll save that for my next book. <laughs> and he just never wrote about it. <laughs> and you can see why. Because with all this crazy stuff that goes on, like she eventually talks about poltergeist stuff that happens. She talks about you know, entities showing up in her house. She talks about government people in weird vans parked across the street doing things to her phone line. She talks about weird phantom phone calls. Uh, you can tell why Bud Hopkins would be like, all right, one step at a time. Bud Hopkins, as far as I'm aware, like we've spoken to Avon Smith a couple of times about him. And apparently he was very down to earth, but as down to earth as you can be in this in this field. And, you know, allegedly a lovely person as well. But yeah, you can understand why he would be especially back then, reluctant to tell a story like this. But there's something that's just, it's just sitting in my mind at the moment where I think that, so she said that the reason why she's retold the story is because her sister... Her sister contributed a bunch of chapters to the original book and it kind of messed up how she was telling right, the story. okay. So then I'm thinking, is that really what took place? And I'm not saying I don't believe her, but what's very strange about this is what she is describing... You know, back in the time when Bud Hopkins was around and when this was first published, this was the fringe of fringe. Like, this was the high strangeness of high strangeness, right? So I can understand why it wouldn't be published. But looking back from now, and of course, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but we can see that what she's describing is something that we've heard in many other cases. But is that because... Well, she she was one of the first. And I'll tell you something that that you might find surprising. She actually went to Hopkins and told him about a phantom pregnancy she had had where she'd got pregnant uh, with her boyfriend and eventually they got married. They had a rushed marriage because they wanted to walk the aisle before she was too big. And, you know, she was checked out by doctors. Pregnancy was confirmed. She was about seven or eight months in. Eight months? Yeah, she was really far in. Uh, And then she had this experience, this, you know, missing time experience. And then she woke up and realized she wasn't pregnant anymore. And everyone's like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? She goes to the doctors and they don't understand because she is not pregnant anymore. Yeah, and that was definitely very early on in the scheme. She went to Hopkins and she said, Bart, I have to tell you, I lost my baby. And she tells him the story and he looks at her. This is what she says. Hopkins looks at her. He doesn't say it, but she said he had this look like, what the hell does that have to do with my research? Like, Why are you telling me this? Not in Interesting. a not in a like no 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 but yeah a cold way but just, but like, yeah, just how in is a this relevant in, yeah how is this relevant to what I'm that's a very sad story but how is this revel- relevant and when you know she convinced him the full details of what had happened how strange this pregnancy was how um follow up hypnotherapy revealed that they had actually. She was one of the first abductees to talk about a presentation where extraterrestrials got her on board some craft or in some room and, and basically brought out this hybrid child and explained to her that this is yours. This is partly your child. She was the, the first person to say this. And then afterwards, thousands and thousands and thousands of women came forward with similar stories. Is this the 70s? Uh, 80s. 80s. Okay. So it's probably, yeah, it's at the beginning of the phenomenon as far as, you know, the popularity of it, for sure. Um, the only thing that I'm, I'm wondering is that has this woman just been exposed to so much that, like, I'm not saying she's lying by any means at all, <laughs> but it's like, it's just so out there 
but at the same time, so consistent with other stories that we heard. She might be crazy, but one weird detail that occurred after all her experiences mm. is in high school, she had an IQ test and she was 111. Uh, I don't know what researcher asked her to do this, but another researcher prompted her to go and get an IQ test, maybe because they were working with other people who had changes in their faculties after they'd been abducted. And it's kind of standard to do psychometric testing and that kind of stuff. That makes sense. So she goes and does a couple of IQ tests. She scores 139 and 141. That's Sharon Stone level of intelligence. Sharon Stone. Yeah, she's got a really high <laughs> Is IQ. Is she really yeah. up that high? Yeah. She literally gets enrolled in or accepted into Mensa. Wow. And she's so shocked by it because she says, I don't feel smarter. But obviously I am. And looking back at my, you know, after high school, the years I did the IQ test, I was 111. Maybe she just had a bad day. So yeah, maybe I was having a bad day, but 140s like in That's the high. 98th percentile. Yeah. Um, and so she seemed to have a real kind of change that came over her. Uh, there's, there's black helicopter stories as well. It's all sorts of weird stuff where you kind of go, is she just crazy too? Because there's this MyLab experience where she um, she has a hot date with a guy. This is a totally different guy after she's broken up with her husband and they're going to spend a romantic weekend away. And this guy picks her up. They drive out to one of his cabins. And as soon as they arrive at the cabin, she just sees a, her, her date's face like really terrified and then a hood just goes over her head and she's like knocked out. You know, she's injected with something in her arm and she's out. She comes to, she feels like she's in a vehicle and she's moving, but she can't see anything. And when she finally regains some form of consciousness, she's slumped over, held by guards, and in front of her are six humans dressed in orange uniforms with orange baseball caps on. And they're in some weird, super long hallway with glass doors on either side. And they take her to this large glass chamber. One of the guard, the orange suit guys, uses a... um swipe card and uses some voice activation and this huge glass door opens. They take her inside and there's two doctors wearing like white, you know, doctor Standard outfits. Standard doctor attire. They put her down on a table and they start, um, actually the doctor, and this is an interesting detail. She says the doctor has a really thick southern drawl and is explaining to her what's going to happen. He's like, you got to- Why is he explaining it? He's like, he says, you got a bug. You got to, we got to get this bug out of your ear. You got a bug in you. And she's, she can barely talk. She's all kind of out of it. And he pulls out this long syringe metal implement and st starts sticking it into her ear. And he pulls out, he pulls something out of her ear. <laughs> he pulls something out and he shows it to her. And he says, you're not going to remember any of this, but I'm going to show you anyway. This is, what we, this is what they put in you. We're taking it out. We're doing you a favor. And she looks and because he said bug, at first she sees a mosquito but he's like, look closer, and she looks closer, and it's it's this weird, it almost looks like a BB. It's like a weird metal circular thing that's been inside her. And he says something else that she can't remember, but then finally says, you're not going to remember any of this anyway, so I'll see you later, Lassie, and she passes out. There's this weird kind of semi-official group that's watching abductees, taking out their implants. Oh, well, I would believe that. I would believe that if this phenomenon is real. I mean, and I think that enough people have experienced this that I don't think everyone can be lying or hallucinating or making it up. 
it would make sense that there would be a human agency that would be, look, it could be one, it could be positive, they could yeah. be trying to protect us, or it could be negative, they could be trying to exploit the technology for commercial purposes. Who knows? Who knows what's going on there? The only thing that gets me is that, well, first of all, a couple of things that she's mentioning kind of fit in with popular culture. What she's describing there is a scene from The Matrix where the bug is essentially pulled from Keanu Reeves. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking... But then she didn't obviously didn't get it from The Matrix. No, well, what I'm wondering <laughs> is, like, it's, it, obviously we don't know, but when was this recorded? Like, did she tell all it's of all this? It's all from the 80s. So it was all recorded back in the 80s? Uh, I think her first book came out in 1994. So did that show up? In 1994, is all this, or is this all new? I, I, don't, I haven't heard. I don't know if this is new. Um, the Matrix. When did the Matrix come out? 99. 1999. Yeah. Maybe the Matrix got it from her. <laughs> Look, I'm not saying that that's that's actually taking place. I'm just saying it's kind of it's this weird element of fiction. Um, which is being represented here in, in these stories. And is it just that people in Hollywood are so connected yeah. to these stories that they've obviously adapted them for film? Well, many people don't know that that's where Sasha Baron Cohen actually got the Borat idea from, <laughs> is from these dumb bimbo Pleiadians who don't know what anything yeah, I is. I would believe that. I would absolutely believe <laughs> that. That's his whole character yep, is okay. based on that. Yep. <laughs> I'll link to the book in the show notes if you want to find out more. Obviously, it's an incredible story. Um, but you know, we're just focusing on some of the weird bits that slip through the cracks. I'll link to uh, Bud Hopkins's Intruders, and of course the new one from Deborah Jordan Corbell, Extraordinary Contact: Life Beyond Intruders. Isn't it incredible though? It really is incredible that these people, as I said, she already had a strange story, and then there's all this additional stuff that's oh, like high strangeness. There's so much more, like black helicopters trying to abduct her kids and. Yeah. Weird stuff. I think there's there's more to it. And, you know... Um, Where is, something... is Lars today? Well, he's dead, apparently, but that he could pass through walls as well, so... Was he ever alive? Look, and this is something that I, I really have learned over the years with all this type of phenomena, whether it's paranormal, whether it's UFOs, it always seems to have some weird intertwined connection between these things. There's always these strange links. And where this comes in, which is really quite apparent, is... Today, when I was looking into the strange report of phone calls from the dead, now, of course, you know, there was a book by the same name written by uh, D. Scott Rogo, and uh, I think Raymond Bayless was involved in the publication of that book. And at the time, when phone calls from the dead was published, I mean, the reason why D. Scott Rogo was so great is because he was looking at phenomenon, which was the fringe of the fringe. Like, even amongst the circles of people that were paranormal investigators and researchers for the time, the whole concept of phone calls from the dead was, like, so far out there that mm. even hardened researchers were just like... <laughs> Not looking yeah, into that. That's ridiculous. Sounds like a spooky ghost story. But apparently it's incredibly common and it's been so common that it even started as far back as two years after the development of the telephone. Really? Apparently reports started coming through in the 1800s, like obviously the late 1800s, of people that would get phantom phone calls from, and that would fit this classical case typing of either type one or type two. Type one is that it would be just a short phone call and it would sound like it was coming over the wind like when you would yeah, listen right. in and you pick up the receiver and you know be listening through that, that would be interesting if you got a, a phone call from your dead grandma uh before and and, bef and but while she was alive there was no such thing as telephones so you'd be like grandma you're dead that's what and it was. you don't even know what no, a telephone yeah, absolutely. is absolutely <laughs> that's exactly what it was uh and this is why you know there's that stuff about edison you know apparently working on a, a telephone to communicate with the dead it was because there was this theory amongst spiritualists at the, right. at the time that 
the dead and spirits were able to manipulate uh, electronic mediums for the purposes of communicating. And that's why we have telephones. But what's so strange, you're right, but what's so strange about it is that when you look at like EVP research, for example, like EVP research, it's always, whenever you hear it, it's like, oh, I think it sounds like blah, blah, blah. But then someone else will interpret it in a completely different fashion. Yeah, never been impressed by an EVP. No, neither have I. But at the same time, then these reports of telephone calls from the dead, they're always quite clear. Like they're very clear apart from, as I said, type ones. It's where the person actually receiving the telephone call knows that the person is dead and they'll hear the voice coming through, but the voice will come through sounding like it's extremely distant or it will sound like there's a rush, of, a great rush of wind. This is commonly reported. Or of course, there's the type two experiences. And with the type two, it's more like you don't know that that person's dead, but they'll give you a call and they'll yeah, have a chat right. with you and tell you that they're going on a journey. Or So what was going on with the building in Miami? So the headline I saw is that the calls were coming from a landline. A landline, which is connected to the building. I think this has been sensationalized a little bit uh, because it's not as big as you would think. So this was reported by Jake Samuelson. So Jake Samuelson and his family said that around 9.50 p.m. on the Thursday night, so this is almost, not immediately, but very quickly after the collapse of this building, they started receiving phone calls from, and of course there was caller ID, he started receiving phone calls from his grandparents, Arnie and Miriam Notkin. Uh, they didn't know, I don't think they knew that they that the building had collapsed. And But every time that they answered the phone, they said that they just got static on the other end of the line. And it got to the point where they were, um, they got 16 calls. Right now, look, if someone was in this building, I was looking at, because obviously uh, like places like the Daily Mail have sensationalized this and say, oh, spooky phone calls from the dead. But there's more to it, especially when you look into this stuff from D. Scott Rogo and Raymond Bayless, where it's like, I've seen some people speculating on this, saying that perhaps when the building collapsed, they'd survived in some pocket yeah, somehow. The, somehow the line's still connected. Okay, and that's the thing. Fat and chance, this is, Exactly, and this is what was dismissed. It was like, hang on a second. So you're saying that they somehow survived the collapse of the building and yet the telephone cable hadn't been severed at, at some point in the collapse of that yeah, building? It's insane. It's insane, right? It doesn't happen. Also, it's consistently, well, it's continued for at least 16 times. But when they call back, they just get a busy signal. And so if the phone had come off the hook some, for some reason, it wouldn't keep calling out as well. So all these kind of you know, skeptical points, you know, they're good to consider, but it seems like there's something more, especially when you look at the literature of the history of this stuff, is that this has been going on for a long time. As long as telephones have been around, it seems like spirits have attempted to manipulate them, to contact them. And as I said in the last show, when it's associated with high emotive incidents and disasters, you have a higher incidence of these reports as well. And we don't know why. And, you know, so I, I wanted to continue with this. So I'll link to the article itself in the show notes so you can check it out. I mean, maybe this is just some weird technical thing that's taking place, but there have been plenty of other cases. And, you know, what I, as I was saying, this all kind of mixes in together. Funnily enough, it's not that the telephones are just simply used for uh, communicating with spirit. It's also used for conveying messages. It's used for conveying... Um, assistance and putting people into you know onto the right path that they have to be on, and I happen to be going through telephone calls from the dead by Callum E. Cooper. Now Callum E. Cooper, I looked into his book. Oh God, it must be almost a decade ago now, maybe a little bit less. Um, but he actually went to the archives of D. Scott Rogo and pulled out. Oh, that's right. I think it was like an additional 17 or so cases yep. that D. Scott Rogo had never published, and some of them are quite fringe. But I just wanted to mention this one to you because. It's kind of on the outskirts of 
what this could possibly be, but it might give us some insight because with telephone calls from the dead and even you know other research that Callum Cooper and D. Scott Rogo had done, they'd done reports of, for example, remember, Ben, there was that phone that kept on ringing. Um, it was like an antique old phone that was on the wall. And the guy goes and answers it, and it happens to be his dead grandmother or something saying, Sonny, it's all good to hear that you're <laughs> yeah. okay. I'm okay over here. Yeah. And then he realized that this antique telephone had never been connected. Yeah. Like there was no power. There's no, there no way that this, this phone was actually working. Well, this story comes from Rachel, and it's a bit nuts, but I think it actually does demonstrate just how strange these things can get. So Rachel says it was in uh, August of 1999. It was the 11th of August in 1999. And she was with her her husband and her daughter. And they decided to go camping for a couple of weeks in Devon. So they said their tent was located on the back of this field, but the campsite was full. And she said, you know, as they're camping there, I don't believe she had a mobile telephone with her, but she had a, a clock with her. And she kind of thought that maybe the eclipse was playing a role because there was an eclipse happening this night. And the eclipse happened at around 10.10. Uh, and she said, funnily enough, just after the eclipse, she says she hears this telephone ringing. Now, she says that her daughter and her partner at the time, who later became a husband, were asleep. And she was just lying on her stomach and she was listening to a large family gathering that was in a tent that was about 60 feet away. And she said she just finished a glass of wine. But it's really important to note that she wasn't drunk. Like she just had a singular glass of wine. There was no way that this would cause hallucinations. But she said, as she's sitting there just enjoying the evening air, this telephone rings. And she said, this telephone got louder and louder. She said it was this loud traditional type ring that was filling the air all around them. And she said, she started thinking that, God, I wish someone would answer that phone. But then it dawned on her. She's like, hang on a second. I'm in a campsite. I'm in a campsite in the middle of a field. Who the hell has this traditional old telephone out here? Like it sounded like a landline yeah. old telephone. And she said it became actually to the point where she became annoyed and incredulous about you know, no one's picking up this telephone, right? And as soon as she thinks that, apparently the pitch of the ring kind of changes. Oh. And it becomes even more irritating. <laughs> changes to a Nokia 3310 Yeah, or it just becomes more irritating. She's looking around. She's like, but... Like she knew that her daughter and her husband were light sleepers and she was expecting them to be sitting up going, who's answer or why is no one answering that phone? Like, who is that? But she said she looks around and they're asleep. Like they're both out of it. And she said the phone, this bell, this ring that's coming from this telephone becomes deafening. And she said in her brain, she was like yelling out loud, quit, stop, stop. And she says suddenly the ringing changes to something that she recognizes. Right, this ring is identical to a phone that she used when she was a child. Mm, wow! Apparently, she was at Cookham Lock, and this was like a—it um, must have been a, a residence. And she said she knew this sound, and so th- the ringing didn't stop. Right, and she's looking around. She can't work out why no one else is awake. She can't work out why it's getting louder, and she thinks, "What am I going to do?" She's like, "Um, I'm going to answer it in my head." <laughs> so what she does, does... she actually fake out picking up a telephone? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. she puts her hand down and she picks up this phone and she goes... Uh, Be good if you had a banana on hand. Yeah, exactly. That. She goes, cook them lock. Who's speaking, please? And apparently this voice <laughs> goes, you took your bloody time. <laughs> and she says, immediately. She's like, this is my father's voice. She's like, this is my father's voice. She's like, I'm so sorry. Uh, who's speaking? Say, Rachel, Rachel, it's your father. Listen, I don't have much time. I need to speak to you about your mother. <laughs> and she's like, you can't be speaking to me. You're dead. He's like, I know that. Just shut up and listen to me. 
He's like, I don't have much time. They won't let me talk to you. She's like, who? They. Who's they? He's like, I'm in hospital. I went over too quickly. I'm not strong enough yet. The nurses are amazing, but I'm not strong. She's like, what? um, what? Like, why are you calling? And apparently in her mind, he says, I'm worried about your mother. She says that she's coping, but she's not coping. You need to look after her. She's like, um, <laughs> this is bizarre. Okay, of course I will, Dad. Uh, what about David? So David was her elder brother who was 12 years older. Said, David's fine. Make sure you look after your mother. And then hangs up the phone. <laughs> Now, it rings again and it's just an Indian call center. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this is all occurring in her mind, right? Now, just as the phone's about to go dead, she actually says, Dad, Dad, can I ask you something? And she's like, uh... Oh, he goes, yes, yes, what is it? She's like, well, if you're dead, can you tell me if there's a God? And apparently the father's like, yes, he's here, but uh, he, he's nothing like you could ever comprehend or understand. <laughs> I have to go now! <laughs> and off he goes. Although the last thing apparently he says, she says, are you okay? He's like, I'm just very tired. And she puts the phone down, like she physically puts the phone down and looks around, it's just in shock. Like mm. she's in this state of shock and bewilderment after having this weird internal mind telephone call. And the following morning when she wakes up, you know, she speaks to her husband and she's like, did you hear that ringing last night? It's like, no, no, nothing at all. But of course, like what happens to a lot of people that have these weird experiences is that, yeah, there was something wrong with the mother. Yeah, her mother wasn't handling the death very well. Yeah. And so this was like some, now what is speculated by other researchers, and I'll go into that soon, uh, is that maybe this is some type of uh, internal kind of system that kicks in to, uh, you know, help you with others that are bereaved, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe it's some type of telepathy. It's not actually a real contact from beyond the grave. And in this circumstance, we don't actually have a physical telephone. So maybe this is some weird hallucination that she has. Um, we don't really know, but she kind of has these memories that start coming back and she's like, oh, like I've had other weird sigh and ghostly experiences when I was a child. And then, you know, the following Saturday, they actually left. And when they left, they stopped off at a private residence that was a bed and breakfast. And as they, they walk in, um, she said it was this very authentic kind of beautiful old building. And she looks up the stairs and she says she notices this gentleman at the top of this sweeping staircase. And he's this very smart looking suave gentleman. And it really grabs her attention. She's just like, oh, wow. So she kind of like nudges her husband. She's like, hey, look at this guy. And he's like really well-dressed and you know, very fitting for this, this bed and breakfast. And he's Is like, he eating a Whopper? No, but maybe because it, he has basically the same kind of effect or attributes because and he's like, who are you talking about? She's yeah. like, that guy standing up there. And he's like, there's no one there. Now, she doesn't think too much of it until she goes and sits down with the host and they're having Devonshire tea later on and then mm. just chatting away. And uh, the host is like, oh, you know, it's, uh, it's a good thing you guys came along because business hasn't been going so well. And it's, you know, she's like, what are you talking about? There's another guy. And he's like, oh, you, the guy, the very dapper gentleman, you know, wearing the suit. And she's like, he's like, yes, that's our resident ghost. Oh. So she had somehow, after having this weird experience talking to her father, yeah. had also picked up on this weird, uh, it seems like her, her psychic senses were heightened at the time. Yeah, something maybe that allowed the, the phone call from her dad. Yeah, and this is like some residue or some residual effect yeah. that was, was continuing. You know, I didn't know about Raymond Bayless in some of the um, cases that he looked into, but there was this other case I just wanted to briefly mention that was actually published in uh, 1964. It, it got to... Bayless's attention through this article that was published in the Los Angeles Times that was about the old Southern Pacific uh, Railway Depot. And here, Bayless actually showed up because apparently there had been, much like this reporter described of the camping, 
is that there were workers that were working at this depot that said that the telephone would ring constantly. Apparently, there had been this phone calls that would start, they could hear the ringing, but the workers said that there were no telephones in the building. There were only empty jacks at the end of the lines. All the telephones had been removed. So Raymond Bayless shows up and he starts looking into this. And, you know, what was really strange is that while he was there, he actually could hear what he thought might have been faint sounds of ringing coming from a gas station that was across the street. But when he looked into it, it was very easy to identify this ring. Like this ring was very different to these times. And it wasn't like when you were in the building, you could actually hear it ringing. He hadn't heard it at that moment, but you could hear it ringing. This is what the people working there were claiming. So he's, you know, trying to get to the bottom of this. And it demonstrates this kind of uh, trickster element that starts coming into this kind of stuff. And you see this quite commonly when you start looking at these sorts of things as a researcher. But uh, he claims that what his theory was is that this actually, this ringing was coming from another business that wasn't too far away. Uh, it was across, you know, from this particular building. And he goes over to this building and he can hear the phone ringing. And they had an outside setup. They had a singular microphone, not a microphone, a singular speaker outside okay. so that the phone would, re- they could hear if the phone was ringing. Yeah, yeah. And so he's like, that's it. Like, that must be what, very confident, like very happy that he's obviously worked it out. And he goes back and he gets them to keep it ringing. And he goes all the way back to the original building. And when he gets there, he can't hear it. Like it's gone. He cannot hear it. There is no way that this signal can get from this other building audibly over to Mm -hmm. where he's situated. So he thinks, okay, this is weird. So he then thinks that this must have something to do with the wind. So when the wind is going in the right direction, it must assist in the sound going through. And that, again, he says, okay, we've got this worked out. This is exactly what's going on. This is why it's intermittent. This is why we can't hear it. Almost on cue, he steps inside this booming ringing starts. And what it does is it starts moving through the building as he starts trying to, to fox it out and find <laughs> the sound. Almost as the moment they get close to it, yeah. it starts on the opposite side of the building. Is it and leading moving, him somewhere or just messing with it's him? It's just messing with him. It's just moving around. And he's never able to actually come to any conclusions with that particular case because he was just like, okay, this is definitely weird. Mm-hmm. But this element of you know, trickster phenomena seems to be something that was picked up by a number of researchers. There's actually a great paper that was published by Sharon Hewlett, uh, sorry, Sharon Hewlett Roulette. And she published that book, which um, I must go into in more detail in the future. You touched on it, Ben. It was The Source and Significance of Coincidences, Mm -hmm. A Hard Look at Astonishing Evidence. And um, she wrote a paper in the Journal of Scientific Exploration back last year. (laughs) And of course, she was um, describing the research of uh, Laurent uh, Kasperwitz, right? So Kasperwitz is a French researcher. Great, everything's course, in French. It is, everything's in French. <laughs> and he has done research into phone calls you know, from the dead, but he called it uh, phone calls from the beyond. And of course, the book was only published in French. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, you know, there was something that kind of lined up with something I saw from Nick Redfern. So anyone that looks into this, and this is what I'm thinking, this is where the trickster element starts to come in. So something that happened to Nick Redfern is that Nick said that uh, he's only recently published a book um, on, I think it's the history or some of the more strange elements of the death of Marilyn Monroe. And he said, when I was doing research into the death of Marilyn Monroe, he said, it must've been around two o'clock in the morning and the phone rings. And of course, for most of us, you know, if the phone rings at two o'clock in the morning, it's only going to be for one particular reason. You know, it's going to be some terrible news. 
it's going to be something bad. It's going to be something horrible. Yeah. He says he gets up, but he's kind of befuddled in this half-sleep state. And in the darkness, he starts running into the living room. And he doesn't even reach for the light. He just fumbles around and grabs the telephone. And he says as soon as he picks up the telephone, he says he hears this screeching static at this ear-blasting level. And then after a few seconds, as he holds the phone away from him, he says he can hear this noise. And he knows exactly what it is. He could figure it out instantaneously. He said it was Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday what? for JFK <laughs> at Madison Square Garden in New York in May of May the 19th of 1962. So it's like, this was strange, right? And he said this was, this was a recording and it was playing over and over on a loop. But of course, no call number was available. And he thought maybe this is some, it's more than a synchronicity, right? Maybe this is some type of warning. Maybe like, what is this? And, you know, this is something that I was thinking about with Streber. It's like... When you start looking at this stuff, is there some human agency that's trying to stop people from publicizing this or is it something that's paranormal that's trying to stop people or just trying to mess with people when they start looking at this phenomenon? And this is something that happened to uh, Kasperwich. So Kasperwich, apparently, the reason why he got into looking into phone calls from the dead is because he had a strange experience four or five days after the death of his dog. And of course, you know, we've all had dogs and it's, it's very you know, sad when they pass away. And he said he was in the, in the car with his mother and his brother when he just said out aloud, apparently he was you know, bereft at how you know, losing this animal. And he said, you know, I really hope that we meet our dogs in heaven you know, one day and I really wish that I could get a sign. And he says less than a minute later, he receives this text message from someone he doesn't know. And the message read, uh, hi, my arrival went great. Everything's going well, Julie. And he's like, okay, well, I don't know this number. I don't know who Julie is. And... He was like, that's kind of odd though. I just asked for a sign yeah. and I get this, my arrival was great and everything's going well. Now, of course, it could have just been, apparently this was just the, um, like at the end or the start of a new semester at school. So I thought maybe obviously this someone had sent a, you know, a message about going to a new school or something or traveling. It's obviously just a mistake, but it is weird how it coincides with, you know, the, uh, the, the call that he'd basically given out to the universe. But he says, then it gets stranger. Because the very next day, his landline telephone rings and he picks it up and of course there's, there's no one there. And he says that this kept on happening you know, over and over again. Every time the phone would ring, he'd pick it up. He said on strange occasions, the answering machine would spontaneously begin to record something. He said the messages on the machines would be changed. He said there was a time where you got a message of jovial laughter of like a family having a good time around a dinner table. Mm. He said the following day, something even stranger happened. He said the phone rang for who knows what time. You know, it, just, it had gone so many times. But he answered it. And this time, he says he could hear a knocking or a rapping sound. It was like a Morse code. And he thought, okay, I'm just going to try this. And he figured out very quickly that one rap stood for, for no and two was for yes. And apparently, he was able to start asking questions. And this was responding with yes and no replies. And so he thought, oh, okay, this is obviously someone messing with me. So he's going to ask a trick question, an answer that you know no one apart from the people in the room would know, yeah. right? So he asks, he says, was my dog uh, too old? And there's a single tap. No. And then he thinks, okay, this is correct because his dog died not of old age, but of cancer, mm. right? He says, then suddenly over the telephone comes the sound of a dog breathing heavily. <laughs> now this unnerved him, not because it was just his dog that was breathing heavily, but his dog died of lung cancer. Oh, wow. And he said this conversation with raps continued. There was a heavy breathing of a dog and then it cut off and that was the end of the phenomena. Like it just ended there and then. 
So this kicked him into looking into telephone calls from the dead because it seems like, I mean, his is a very strange case because it's not from a human being, which is what most of these cases are. It appears to be from his dog, Was right? he still a good boy? Well, yeah. I mean, we don't know. But <laughs> what was weird is like that, that text message as well. His dog was female, even though his dog's name wasn't Julie. Mm. He thought that as well is kind of like a little bit of a, a strange coincidence. But, you know, there's so many more. I mean, there was a couple of cases that he pulled out. Like this one's very strange. He said that after he started looking into this and he pulled out some of the really juicy cases, of course, it's all in French, so they've all been kind of abridged here. But there was this case of a woman whose son had recently survived a tragic car accident, but uh, his friend had died in the, same, in the same accident. And two weeks after the death, the mother got a phone call from someone she recognized as her son's deceased friend. The friend seemed to be panicking and was asking to speak to her son. He said something to the effect of, hurry, hurry, put him on, please. I don't understand what's going on. I don't know where I am. The whole world is bizarre. And then the phone went dead. So it's almost like he didn't know he was dead, or maybe he mm. had passed into other, some other realm, but he was maybe this was in limbo. So this book still isn't translated into English because no. I remember talking about it. And it's like, oh, it's another one of those oh. ones that's just in French. Yeah, look, I mean, you touched on this book, I think uh, last year sometime. I'm not this book. You look, touched on the, the journal article. And, um, you I know, just like, looked it up in Evernote. It's exactly a year, exactly a year ago that I spoke about this. It's are you almost, kidding me? It's almost like the 12-month anniversary that we mentioned this That this is book. weird. And because... we, exactly a year ago, we complained that it was only in French. <laughs> And now, precisely because on that one-year anniversary, we're complaining that it's still only in That's French. crazy, because after I went through this, and I'll link to the journal article if you haven't read it, or go back and have a listen to that episode, because it gives the, the full rundown of all the crazy cases that happened there. But the reason why I wanted to go into it, because Kasperwich is really like onto something here. He's moving into this idea that, yeah, look, maybe these are phone calls from deceased spirits, or maybe it's something else, much like the trickster phenomenon. And... What he thinks is that maybe um, these entities, they might actually be assisting people. They might actually be stepping in in some way. We think of the trickster phenomenon as being something bad or something negative. And we know that from a lot of the trickster phenomena that we've covered, it usually ends up with some old bag, you know, ending up in a, a mm. wheat field at three o'clock in the morning going to meet Bigfoot. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's, it's an inconvenience that these things, and people's lives are consumed and destroyed by them. But then at other times, there's a positivity about them. And maybe, you know, Kasperwitz points out that this is how the phenomenon is capable of eluding detection, is that it gives it this jovial kind of feel to it. And if you recall with Kasperwitz, right, the reason why it was just so outstanding for him and this theory was really, really you know, reinforced for him is because he fell asleep at the wheel. Do you remember that? Yeah, he, that's right. He fell asleep at the wheel of his car and while he was asleep, this jester appeared before him. That's right. And yeah. the jester... <laughs> puts its hands up as kind of do, 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 yeah, do, 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 yeah. and then gets its hands and then suddenly clenches them and then turns them to the right, right at the moment where Kasperwitz wakes up behind the wheel about to hit a tree and instinctively following what the jester had done, turns his hands on the wheel and spun away mm. and his life was saved. And so where this starts kind of crossing into other stuff is I had to go into, you know, Sharon's book and look to see, and she covers some of these cases. Like, there's actually a huge, and I know that we only went through the first half of that book. I went to the, the back end of this book and she just has story after story after story of this kind of weird, like it does tie in with telephone calls from the dead, but it's basically the, the spiritual and trickster, uh, I guess, influence that happens to people through electronic objects. 
You know, like the electronics of someone's home can somehow be uh, influenced by this. And the reason why we pick it up commonly is because it relates to people that are close to us. Like we want to feel connected. So there was this one story about Robert Hopke and Robert's uh, husband, Paul, was suffering from Alzheimer's and he had always wanted to stay home, right? And unfortunately, it just got to the point where his Alzheimer's was so bad that Robert had to put him into a facility. But in these following months, it was only a few months that unfortunately that he, he passed away. But all this strange electrical activity started happening in his home. There was, you know, like uh, hot air that would come out of the furnace, obviously, you know, but it was a time when it shouldn't be turned mm. on. Um, you know, there'd be control panels that were turned off, but then turned back on. In the middle of the night, he woke up for this bright light that was shining in his face that was somehow being reflected from the bathroom and the TV would behave in a funny way. And all this electrical activity went crazy until finally his husband Paul died. And as soon as his husband died, the activity stopped. And what you know, Sharon was speculating is that it, there's possibly some type of electrical energy or basically as the body starts to separate, as the spirit starts to separate from the body, even though it still may be anchored, it can electrically do things. And so it was trying to get home. Oh, yeah. like it was trying to get back. And there was a story that I read that was kind of similar to this a while back, but it was about the, uh, and I, there really has to be some research into this, but I don't think it would really necessarily be something a researcher would, would want to be associated with it because it's a bit nuts. But there are all these anecdotal reports from nursing homes of people that go to visit nursing homes that feel like they're, they're being possessed by the egos of the patients that exist in them. And what they mean by that is it particularly relates to chairs, right? Not beds, but chairs, because the patients in Alzheimer's wards, they don't know where they are. They don't know what's going on. They're, they're completely, you know, they're, they're gone, really. Mm. Like their spirit is kind of on its way out. But what some family members have reported is that when they go and they just happen to sit in the chair of where an Alzheimer's patient has been, they'll start picking up on oh, that's memories right. yeah. <laughs> on the Alzheimer's patient that they just have no way of knowing. Or they'll say that they feel like something is seeping into them, which is part of the ego or the personality trait mm. that had been lost. Right? It's almost like as the Alzheimer's sets in, it's like... A bit of panpsychism, yeah, a bit of psychometry. Like it imbues the object. It's like it starts leaking yeah. out of the patient. It's like the guy the I covered who, who mentally tapped into the consciousness of his couch, his favourite couch. Yeah. And all the people that had slept on it over the years had left some residue of consciousness and it had formed into a sentient entity. Well, it's like some type of medium. Like it, it acts as some yeah. type of, of storage. His, for... cou his couch was like, relax, man, it's fine. <laughs> relax. <laughs> well, maybe. I mean, it's, but it's just odd that this was something that was reported. And it seems to be more consistent with Alzheimer's patients. Right. Which is weird, right? And it's because it's something's happening to your filter. Like your brain has yeah. luck. There's something breaking down there's in the brain. a hole in the filter. Yeah. And there's it somehow causing this personality to, to leak out. So... There was another story that I actually picked up, and this is when we go back to, uh, where was I looking? I think this was reported by, it might have been Callum Cooper. I've got my notes mixed up here. Um, oh, no, actually, this was reported by Sharon as well. And this was a story of a, a woman that, um, or a husband, I'm sorry, that was obviously very sad about the, the death of uh, his wife. But he gets this text message. And the text message is saying something along the lines of, oh, we're unable to find the address, you know, 96 something fake street in, in such and such. Yeah. And he was like, um, that's, that's strange. Like, why would I get that? So he contacts the, um, the rideshare company 
And they tell him, no, we've been trying to find this place. We received a request. He's like, I didn't make a request. I, I just didn't do that. And they said, oh, okay, well, we'll just cancel it. Now, after it gets canceled, though, he sits down and he's like, it's my wife's business address. Like, that's where my wife used to work. Uh-huh. And what had happened was, is that when she had died, she'd been placed in, in a hospice, right? And all she wanted to do was go home. But she oh, couldn't, right. they couldn't look after her. But all she wanted to do was just go home. But what she used to do when she worked there, she'd occasionally, when she couldn't get home through him picking her up, she'd order a, a ride share. It uh. would pick her up from her office and then take yeah, her back weird. home. And this happened right after her death. You know, so these weird kind of, they're not direct communications, but they're these weird synchronicities that come through, you know, these modern technologies. That and, we and that suggests, just on the topic of it being a trickster entity that's uh, harming you versus something positive, yeah. that suggests that it's something positive, the idea that it's just a subtle hint left for the person, because it's the direct messages that usually come from the low-level entities that want to see you, that's right. harm done to you. Yeah. Yeah, but this is more subtle. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, actually, and it doesn't always necessarily have to be from the dead. You know, going back to that concept of it being some type of uh, like a psychic distress call that could be sent out. There was a story that was from the psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Judith Orloff. And apparently she was driving up Sunset Boulevard when she pulls up to this car and she looks in the car next to her and it's this patient of hers. And she's like, oh, you know, I haven't seen such and such in years. And she goes to wave and then she quickly stops waving. She's like, oh, oh, that's not, that's not her at all. Oh, yeah. that's weird. Like, oh, she's a striking image of her. Like, that, that's kind of awkward. Because you know how you, like, you think you recognize someone. Yeah. Like, oh, uh, <laughs> sorry, never mind. But she says, for whatever reason, she knew, like, because she was, you know, um, cognizant of the importance of synchronicities. Mm. She's like, this is meaningful. This is a meaningful event to take place. So she calls this patient that she hasn't spoken to in years. It just so happens that this patient was basically on the ledge. Like she had just, she'd just been fired from a job that she absolutely loved and was extremely vulnerable at the time. And it was almost like she had this patient, former patient, had psychically reached out for her therapist's help. She really needed that contact. She really needed that contact at the time. And then, of course, there are more physical examples that come through that, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be electrical. There was a story that came from a woman by the name of uh, Jeanette, and she woke up in the middle of the night to this terrible crashing sound from her bathroom. Now, she thought initially that maybe someone had broken into the house, there was an intruder inside, but she gets up and she rushes into the bathroom and she finds, obviously, that there's no one there. But there's all these broken bottles of perfume that are all over the floor. And um, there was no broken shelf that just somehow fallen from the shelf, but there's just no way that it could have just done that by itself. It was strange. She worked for Chanel, apparently, so it was easy to have them replaced. But she says moments after this happened, the phone rings, right? She, it's in the middle of the night. She goes and picks up the phone. It's her sister, Annette, who just moments before had been robbed at gunpoint. Oh, wow. So it was like, again, this weird distress signal, yeah. but because this crash had happened, it had woken her up, gotten her out of sleep to be there for her sister when she called in a time of need. So it's just, they're just strange little things that happen that show you that there's some type of, uh, it's not always negative when we have these connections. We don't know exactly what they are, but they do seem to play some type of of important role. Um, You know, there was one more actually that came from uh, Matthew Manning. Now he was a a psychic and (laughs) is more annoying than helpful is that whenever he would try and get in contact with people, uh, what he would do is like he would he didn't know this either, right? So what happened was he'd try and call people, and if they weren't home, obviously the phone would ring out, and he would get a little bit frustrated about it. Until finally, uh, he 
one day the phone rings and he's trying to contact someone and finally they pick up. And he's like, oh, where have you been? And they, they knew exactly that it was Matthew Reed. Like, how did you know it was me? And it's like, because we've just had a lamp smash. Every time you try and call and we don't pick up the phone, poltergeist <laughs> activity happens in our house. Wow. Whether a chair goes flying through or something smashes. And it seems like he's got this ability to uh, physically affect the location around the telephone, but has no knowledge of it until obviously he's told about it. So with all this in mind, is there something to that story out of Miami? Is I think there, there is. some kind of paranormal aspect well, to it. I think there is. I think it's actually, um, it's quite typical. I mean, it fits in with some of the stories that I've mentioned, right? So this is something that happened suddenly. I reckon, like the story I told you of the mother that received the phone call of her, her son's you know, dead friend, I don't think they knew that they were dead. Mm. I think what's happened is, is that uh, they've had a disaster take place. It's been a very rapid and sudden death. And right, and yeah, they just want to, and they yeah, highly let traumatic. their family know they're okay. Yeah, well, maybe I mean maybe they're trying to call for assistance because mm. that's what you would do, right? Once you're placed into a situation, who are you going to call? You're going to call your family straight away. And you know this is not isolated. We heard this after uh, the tsunami in Japan ten years ago as well of phantom phone calls going to family members yeah. all across Tokyo from Fukushima and from these regions that were affected, um, you know, from the tsunami and their houses have been blown away. Yeah, this seems to happen with a lot of these disasters. So I don't think it's that paranormal. I think for people that are not familiar mm. with you know things like telephone calls from the dead by by Rogo and Bayless, have we lost it now though? Because so much communication is text message based, and it's not no. necessarily voice. No. Is, it, is it lost to, mm. in a, to a degree? Is the next generation not going to experience? phantom phone calls it's it's changed it's changed and unfortunately i couldn't find like phantom tweets i'm not kidding like not not tweets necessarily but phantom messages um you know people using instant messenger uh, platforms mm. i've been getting you know uh, apparently like delayed messages they just write them off as delayed messages from family members but they are they are being reported. The problem is there's no there's no researchers looking into it anymore. I, I would like to be able to send you a few memes from the dead after I'm <laughs> after I'm gone. Just a few <laughs> spicy memes that, that from the grave. Great, yes. Maybe that could be your new work. Be Aaron Wright, spicy memes from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you sent me all these terrible videos, these webebs of like web people, yeah, web of people being killed by you know falling trucks and maybe. They're Tasteful videos well, of people tasteful. being killed. If you said be a CCTV WebM of your death, then I'll know it's you. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll be like, okay, this is definitely real. <laughs> this is bad. He's communicating with me from beyond the grave. Okay, wow. no, this is real. So look, I think it's changing. And I think that maybe we need to be uh, open to it. We need to be aware of it. Um, but at the same time, you know, like uh, one thing that I found from Nick, you know, Nick points out that um, Timothy Green Beckley actually had a friend by the name of Claudia. And Claudia was known as the MIB lady. And I don't know exactly why, but apparently she'd had a number of experiences. I don't know the, the details of those experiences. But she points out this story that happened all the way back in the 70s. She said in the 70s, she was married to a police officer. And uh, I think his name was Denny. And she said, look, I would spend many nights at home by myself. And uh, because obviously he was out working the night shift, but just one evening, right, she happens to be reading none other than Phone Calls from the Dead, right, by D. Scott Rogo. Mm -hmm. And she said, as she's, you know, reading through this, um, she starts, you know, getting these eerie kind of, you know, memories from what her father had described. Apparently her father was a, a stage actor and, you know, um, she or he had called her from beyond the grave. So she was familiar with this kind of stuff. She's just never been able to Runs classify. in the family. Yeah, before, right? But she said, 
One night when she was in bed reading this book, she said she she stopped reading the book and then just turned on the radio. And it just so happened that when she turned on the radio, it was an interview with Betty Hill. And Betty Hill was describing, this is after she'd read this book, Claudia's reading telephone calls from the dead, right? You mean Betty and Barney Hill? Betty and Barney Hill, famous abductees. Betty Hill is describing all the telephone experience she'd been experiencing after her abduction experience, or her and her husband had experienced, right? And she's sitting there, Claudia, she's like, oh, isn't that weird? Wouldn't it be strange if my phone rang right now? And guess what happened? The phone rang right then, right? Mm. She goes, it's like nine o'clock at night. She goes and picks up the phone and immediately all she can hear is heavy static. That's all it is. Now, she says her fear is just triggered, like it just goes through the roof. But she thinks that this is fear attracts these entities. And because she'd been thinking about this kind of stuff, it had somehow, you know, caused something. And whatever these entities were, maybe trickster entities, were having a bit of a laugh, right? However, it appears that Claudia is not a stranger to this type of phenomenon. And there was an incident that occurred where she claims that uh, she was at her parents' house. And once again, uh, her husband... He didn't even have, or maybe he did have her number, but basically she was at her parents' house. Her parents would go out with friends and they wouldn't get home until about three o'clock in the morning. And she said on this evening, she was there by herself and she wasn't a particular fan of this house because it was right next to this massive cemetery, which already had some you know weird kind of feelings about it being a cemetery in itself. But she said the house had just had this brand new pink rotary phone installed and had a private unlisted number. The only people that had the phone number was her sister, her friend, and her husband, Right. And she says, like, no one else had the phone, this number. But this phone rings while she's home alone. And she says she picks up the phone, and there's this guttural, threatening voice. And it says, Claudia. And she's like, uh, yeah. And says, I see you just got home. I don't know what I'm going to do with you. I'm coming over now. And then click, right? Uh, Just like... Call the cops. Yeah, right. So she, she freaks out because she's like, hang on, there's a brand new phone, brand new number. No one has it. Uh... Uh, maybe a maybe a neighbor saw me come home, but how do they have the number? Yeah, how would they have the number? So she goes running. She starts to run out of the house. As she runs, she says she can see these two lights pulling up the driveway, and she's freaking out until she realizes it's fortunately her parents, and her parents had come home a little bit early. And to kill so, her? No, no. But this is the thing. So only three people had it, but they, whatever this voice was, it called her name. Like it knew who she was. Now, this could have been a prank caller. Maybe. But the fact that she'd had this, you know, lifetime of these strange calls, and at the time, guess what she was doing? She was heavily involved in UFO research. Mm, yes. Men in there Black. There is. An agency? Opening doors. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, is this the thing? Is she allowing herself to be vulnerable by looking into this phenomena, and is it by a human intelligence? which possibly could be, or as a bio-paranormal intelligence that doesn't want people to talk about UFOs. This is why when you do UFO research, you, you should do it from the safety of a shipping container. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> far, we, far away from anything else. This is the thing, right? I mean, I must say, while I was on my break, I did have a, a fleeting moment, right? I realized, like, people, I say it all the time, right? There are no researchers anymore. Like, well, there are some, but they're few and far between. Like, all the big names, they're all gone. John Keel. You know, Bud Hopkins, they're just, they're, they've all kind of gone into the other realm. I had, did have this fleeting moment over my break of like, you know what? I actually think I'm going to become a researcher. 
I think I'm going to, and then I immediately was Enjoy like. Enjoy being poor. I don't know why. <laughs> Not only that. Enjoy being poor. Enjoy being potentially murdered yes. or having my family harassed by some weird yeah. spectral entity. Enjoy or, having weird dinosaur demons stalking your property at night. But in saying that, I've already had enough weird, and this is what most researchers do. Most researchers get into it because they have their own weird experiences. Yeah. And the weird experiences, and you know what? So this is the other thing that my son did, right? So remember how on that last show I was saying that he saw like the, the, the caricature of the, the gray and he was always like, they're upstairs. I'm like, oh, come on. You know, he's yeah. just, you know what he's doing now. So we've gotten into a, into a bad habit where he will only sleep in our bed, right? The other night he woke up like screamed, screamed, right? Came running out and I opened, he was like on the door. It's kind of normal for him. Like, it's just what he does, except for when I, I got him, like I opened the door and I, I, put, I picked him up. I'm like, you're right, mate. You're all right. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Points straight over next to the bed where I had that dream. Oh. <laughs> what I thought was a dream about there being something in the house. And he's pointing at it. I'm like, what? He's like, oh, that's scary. Just like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I can't the man with the big eyes that takes me at night. He didn't say anything else. He just yeah. said scary. And I was it's just like, a face. Like, I'm sure it's just a face. I'm sure. My son's over his Aaron face, thank God. <laughs> oh, that only lasts a week. Doesn't mention you every five minutes. Oh, that's all right. We'll get that it, happening you've again. You've been replaced by Batman. Oh, that's not too bad. Okay, so, I, don't, I don't feel so bad about that. I can deal with that. That works. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for going through all that stuff. That was awesome. Yeah, look, I'll link to it. We'll all go the, through it again next year. Yeah, look, I think we <laughs> should. The anniversary. We, should, we should make it an anniversary. We should make it an annual event. Yeah, a traditional custom, an annual custom. Actually, what I will do, though, I wanted to go through what I was, I was having a look at Sharon's book, and I didn't realize there are some weird voodoo cases in there that I want to go into. It's like that just, book is so good. Uh, I think I've already done it on the show twice. <laughs> so it's so, it's well, so good. It's so big. Yeah. It's, it's like 600 yeah. pages. It's like massive we've, we've and it's awesome. Barely touched it. So I, I did find some uh, voodoo cases that are crazy because they're crazy from the perspective of they're Westerners that have gone to locations where voodoo was prevalent. Mm-hmm. And they've said, look, I don't believe in, in, in voodoo, so curse me. Like, come on, curse me and see what happens. And of course... They dead. Oh, well, not quite They dead, need some milk. But funnily enough, it ties in with... They have strange phone calls and it ties in with some terrible events taking place because oh. they're, they're messing with what, what you know we think is superstition, but it's something that seems to be very quite real and very tangible. So I'll go into that actually in, in some future episodes. Looking forward to it. Uh, make sure you check out the artwork for this episode, which is a hot Swedish man wearing a Burger King hat. Well done. Yeah, that's that's we're uh, doing that. My, while I was doing my the story. goal for this season is to make the POS episodes that their artwork so incomprehensible <laughs> that people are like, "What the what the hell is that about?" <laughs> that's my goal for this season. Exclusive to Plus. You will be the only punters that know what's going on. What's with the glitter? It's just a little bit much. Don't you think? <laughs> it's a little bit. It's a little bit gay, but. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. We'll leave it That's fine. That's fine. Thanks for being on Plus. Welcome to a new season. We'll be back on Friday to kick off season 26 of Mysterious Universe. Have a great week. We'll see you then. <laughs>